you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, has like pretty much just wrapped up playing the film festival circuit, which is great. But yeah, it's me. <laughs> I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who's made two features, and I'm in development on about five more. I'm a distribution consultant. I also do sales, and I used to manage Sundance Institute's Creative Distribution Initiative. This week, we welcome cinematographer Alice Brooks to the show to talk about her career of working on indie features and how she almost quit the industry completely, and then how she broke out to DP in the Heights for John Shu, like right, like six months after she almost quit, and then how that blew open the doors for her career, and it directly led to her lensing tick, tick, boom, for Lynn manuel Miranda, which is just an incredible story. But Alice also really illustrates how much of a struggle it can be to make a name for yourself as a cinematographer, and that it can be really, really hard or near impossible to make the leap from like low-budget features to studio features. Liz and I also talk about this article from No Film School about the Austin Film Festival's script feedback scandal, and what a scandal it was, and all our guests, Liz, about pitching. But first, Liz, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. Okay, this is what's on my mind. Maybe this is of interest for the show. I've been having all these conversations on the features that I attached myself to in order to leverage those projects to get bigger budgets. All of the conversations I have with them now are, how do we adjust the script to reduce the budget to make the movie? (laughs) So what I think is funny is the circular logic of like, it's always going to come back to making a project within your means and resources and there's no like a magic ladder to get access to bigger budgets unless you have the cast unless you're like married to the cast is what i think is the solution so get married right. I, I my encouragement to everyone is to get married to famous people when you say bigger budgets like what are what were the hopes of some of these productions like are they talking like a million two million ten million like where are they trying to go i have one film that's a two million minimum project. We haven't even had the come to Moses conversation yet with that one. <laughs> and then the other one hasn't been budgeted, but probably in the 800 range. And then I have one that has been budgeted that is in the 800 range that we're thinking of bringing down to the 350. So it's just like this world of you can go out with a film, but there's a million reasons why it's going to get passed on. And then you're going to take that to heart. You're either going to take that to heart or you're going to hit your head against a wall for the next few years. And the only way of making projects is to make them micro budget is what I feel is the truth right now. And so who's passing on these movies? These are minor rejections that spin the team out and make us think that we're never going to get any success. So then we have to make it for much less money. Is it like the one person you guys know who has money or has a connection to money? And it's like that person says no and then the door's shut? Or is it like actual production companies, like studios? Like who? To be fair, we went out to like maybe 10 production companies who all rejected us in one way or another. And then we went out to a few independent producers who have been known to get financing. And then there have been, you know, a few just like no responses from people. Mm, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And then it's been a year of being in active development on the project that I'm thinking of right now. And then me and the, the lead producer and slash originator of the project had this call a few days ago where we we're like, that's it. If we don't really make some meaningful progress on this by you know, a certain date that we picked, we're going to find the money for it ourselves. And we're just going to make it. And we're going to rewrite the script to be smaller. And we're going to make this movie. I just think it's funny. I spent 
this whole year being like, I got to get bigger projects. I got to make a bigger dent in this industry. And now I'm like, oh, no, 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 because then you can't make the movie if you get distracted by the bigger projects because I'm not at a place <laughs> right. where I have any leverage still. So that's where I'm right. when I'm how I am. If you want to <laughs> if you want to know the answer to that question, I kind of feel like it's all about like you just have to find the money and like maybe it's a production company. Maybe it's like a studio thing. But like generally those kinds of operations, I think, are inundated with projects and inundated with connections and inundated with people they know better than you who they'd rather support and make their movie, right? Like, unless you have some tight connection with a production company or somebody completely falls in love with that script. Like, I think it's a really hard road to hoe to, like, make that connection happen. But if you know somebody with money or get connected with somebody who has money and you can convince them to put some of that money into your, your budget, and I think that is like the stepping stone to more money, more money, yes. more money, and you get up, you know, but I don't know. I feel like unless you have like a huge hit, your production company, unless they know you, isn't going to really want to like sign on with you as a director and a producer team, right? Because right. it's and like... I, especially if you're unwrapped, right? If you don't have right. the like vetting of, of the system. But I think the core of this is I presumed that actually the way to success was doing these pitches to production companies because I witnessed all <laughs> of my like you know, friends from film school doing these pitches and they'd be like, oh, we're out to this, we're out to this. And I was like, oh, is that what I'm supposed to be doing? I should be going and pitching to companies. But the way I got my first two features off the ground is exactly what you're talking about. You find one person who can believe in you and you use that and then you find another person and you find another person and you find these little small investments that build into a budget. Yeah. We're going to pivot back there, I think. Yeah. I think, I think that's all I know how to do as of now. Maybe one day I'll figure out another solution. But for now, that's all I know what could potentially maybe work and has worked once and maybe it'll work again. We'll see. Right. I think it will. And how are you? I'm doing good. You know, I, I really want to talk about what you said because I spent last week pitching uh, my new project. I uh, pitched to at least, I don't know, damn near 40 people, I think. Wow. And it was speed pitching. So we did five sessions. Three of them were three out or an hour each, and then two of them were an hour and a half each. And you're just jumping five minutes with each person, jumping from person to person, you know, just using that time as as best you can to like, you know, either spend it all pitching and then just like, you know, whatever, like get all on the table. Or lots of times I would ask questions about the person I was pitching to to kind of learn more about who they were or what they're looking for to kind of design my conversation around that, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it went really well. The reaction overall was like, you know, like if, if reactions were money, I would be funded right now. But reactions are not money at all. It almost, it feels good, but it, it really doesn't mean anything. It's really like, when are they actually going to follow up, like answer your email? Are they actually going to follow up and everything? So I had a lot of practice pitching and it was great. It was awesome. And I, and I actually want to talk about it in our main thing. So, you know, I think that'll be, be fun to kind of ask you some questions about how you pitch, like your pitch process, pitch you know, goals, your pitch, sort of everything that you do about pitching. And I can talk about like what I've experienced and learned these last couple of days. But yeah, besides that, uh, what else is going on? I don't know. Life. Yeah. Work. Holidays. I feel like the holidays are always like an endless like warp of like you have no time. Like any time you thought you had is just like sucked up by like a holiday party or like Oof. relatives visiting or whatever, anything, getting a Christmas tree. It's like it's all things happen, you know, and the opposite for me. It's the really? Exact, yeah. 
I operate really well at a certain level of busyness, <laughs> but the holidays strips me of like one less thing. I don't know if it makes sense, but okay. So <laughs> I can't be productive from like Thanksgiving to New Year's because everyone else is shutting down their offices. So I can't run off of the momentum of other people. So I feel very lost for like a month and a half during this period. Like As a I, freelancer or? Life. This has been this way for like 10 years where like I need other people's anxiety to fuel my anxiety <laughs> to, to fuel my to-do list. And I can't, I'm having a hard time getting a lot of things done right now is what I'm saying. Because I'm not, because, because the town is shut down. So what do you do with your time then during the, the holidays? I mean, I have a list of things that I should be doing, <laughs> but, in, but I had a half hour today and I watched The Princess Switch. Like I should not have watched The Princess Switch. I could have posted for social promotion of this show. I could have read like three scripts that are on my docket. Like I have a very long list of things to do, but it's not enough that I feel stressed out about it. So then I watch Netflix Christmas movies. Yeah, but I would say that like, you know, the fact that you had a 30 minute chunk in your day to watch the Christmas switch, it sort of means you're pretty busy, right? Like you've got other things you're doing throughout your day that you're blocked doing, right? Oh, I that's such a nice way of looking at it. I was like feeling really guilty. I was like, I have a half hour. I should be doing more. But you're saying like you only had a half hour. <laughs> you only had a half hour to spend on whatever extra little thing you could fit in. And so then watched, you watched uh, Vanessa Hudgens. Yeah. You gave yourself a break for 30 minutes, which I think is like also really important. And like yesterday, for instance, I had no time for any breaks whatsoever. I like yeah. laid on the floor next to my daughter for like 10 minutes, like, you know, and like had her tuck on my beard. That was my break, which was a great break. <laughs> But yeah, you know, I didn't even have 30 minutes to watch a Christmas movie, which would have been great. So yeah, I don't know. I guess it just sounds like we're very busy, despite yeah. <laughs> the fact that you have this, this thing with the holidays. Yeah. It's interesting. <laughs> Another thing that you guys could do spending your time is to go check out our Patreon page. If you have 30 minutes in your day, or even less, you could jump over there. It's patreon.com slash podcast. Uh, we've got some new things going on over there, like including the new 199 level where you get access to our whole back catalog of episodes, which like right now that means nothing. But in about two weeks, it's going to mean a lot because there will only be about 50 plus episodes of the show available for people to listen to. Like just the public to listen to. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all those places. Like the show will still be there, but you won't have the, the deep depth of the of back catalog that exists now. And that will only be available to uh, Patreon patrons who are at that level or higher. So, you know, that's one thing to check out. Also, we got a very fun special announcement to make. We're going to be doing our first ever Making Movies is Hard AMA, which is happening on January 17th at 2.30 p.m. Pacific time. And this is uh, completely exclusive to Patreon patrons only. Like, if you're not a Patreon patron, you can't access this and you can't participate. So, if you have a question for us, anything at all, because ask me anything, it's anything, right? They can literally ask us any question and we're going to answer it. That's the deal? Yes, that's the deal. Nothing's off the table. You can ask us whatever you want. Deepest, darkest moments on set, which I've talked about a little bit, but I feel like there's still some I've guarded away. Any, any secrets to filmmaking, budgets of films, whatever. All the questions will be answered. So start thinking of your questions now. Are we accepting questions ahead of time, Liz? Sure. Like, what's we, what are we doing? Okay. Why not? Yeah, send, send us your questions. 
Yeah, we'll send us your questions, Twitter, email, Facebook, whatever you want to do. We'll catalog them. We'll get them all together and then we'll have a list to go with during the presentation. But then it'll also be a live event too. So if you want to just participate and ask questions live, we'll do that as well. But it'll be really fun. We're very excited about this. The other thing that you can do is you can check out the International Screenwriters Association, the ISA, who are freaking awesome. And it's an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, contests, and their top 25 writers list featuring some of their best writers. So go over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today, and you can get a yearly membership for only $80. Normally, it's 100 bucks, and the monthly is 10 but you get a discount if you use the promo code MMIH2021 which is valid through January 15th, 2022. But it's only for new ISA Connect members only. So if you've already been a member before, you can't take advantage. But for people who haven't, there you go. But without any more of this blither blathering, here's our chat with Alice Brooks. Alice Brooks, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here today. I don't know. There's so many places to start this conversation, but I think I want to just hear about, I don't know, let's just go right into Tick, Tick, Boom, just because it's the big movie right now. Like, what was your process for, you know, approaching the cinematography for that film? So when I got the script on our last day of In the Heights, which is where I met Lynn Manuel Miranda, it was pretty incredible. So, you know, it, I just shot for 49 days and I'm completely exhausted. And then I got the script to really quickly read and prep for and I start turning and page after page after page, I read the script and I realize it, these could be scenes out of my childhood. So I grew up in New York City in the 80s. My family left New York when I was 10, a few months before this movie starts. And my dad was a playwright. My mom was a dancer, just like John and Susan. And our house was filled with all their artist friends and all this creativity and I watched my dad struggling, trying to make it as a playwright in, in New York and being uplifted by his friends. And some of those friends, we lost to AIDS. And so as I read the script, I was like, I was just completely blown away. And I started to pull pictures to show Lynn. And the first page of my lookbook were, were pictures of my childhood. So pictures of we lived in a 300 square foot apartment with the bathtub in the kitchen, just like Jonathan. We had a walk-up apartment with narrow, dingy halls, just like in the movie. And so I showed this all to Lynn. And he said, wait, these are your pictures. It can't get more personal than this. And then we started talking. And he wanted the movie to look like he remembered New York in 1990. And he was 10 years old, just like I was. And we both have the same memory of New York. And for me, it's my forever New York, because that's the moment in time I left New York. So that's forever etched in my memory. And it's that childlike memory where color and light and emotions are all heightened. And that's how Jonathan is. Jonathan Larson is this childlike human being who doesn't want to grow up. The number 3090, which opens the movie, he's singing about Peter Pan. And sometimes that childlike vision is this line where dreams and realities are sometimes blurred. And that became our jumping off point for how we wanted to create the musical numbers in that in-between place between dreams and reality. I think you already answered this question, but I'm going to give a stab at it anyway and, and throw it onto the, the ether. You talk a lot about the emotional connection between you and Lynn and obviously the emotional connection between you and the material. How does that translate 
to the job? I mean, I you already referenced like certain, you know, color and light, but is there a world where there's a specific rig or there's a specific camera move that draws straight from your childhood that helps you throw it into the creative conversation with your director? Yeah. So we actually started looking at VHS and Jonathan Larson's whole life was recorded. Like our lives right now are always being recorded. And that wasn't true in 1990, but it was true for Jonathan because his friend had a camera and he never imagined anyone would ever look at this footage. But we have, I think, eight years of footage of his life and from the mid 80s to, to shortly before his death. And so we started watching these and Lynn loves Betacam, just loves it. And so he wanted to use Betacam and we tested all these different kinds of cameras and a real movie camera. And then if we scratched it up and did visual effects on it, but nothing felt right. So we used, we opened the movie and closed the movie with a real Betacam shot. Mm-hmm. And then we pepper it throughout the whole movie. So that's sort of like one way where in those cameras, there's very little control and they're very fuzzy and the colors are what the colors are. There's no way to like fix them later on. And so we just embraced that choice. And that sort of, that became the language of our film, the way to open and close the movie. And then how do we then get into our, you know, real movie camera footage? And how do we cut back and forth between that material? And what we chose was an anamorphic lens. And Lynn, when we chose our camera, I said to and our lenses, I said to Lynn, how involved do you want to be in picking the camera and lenses? He's like, I want to be completely involved. He's like, I want to learn everything. <laughs> and the thing that was so wonderful was it was a completely blind test for Lynn because he has no preconceived ideas about brands of cameras or, you know, what spherical versus anamorphic. He, it was all totally intuitive for him as we selected things. And then he, he asked me to explain like why I liked certain parts of the frame in the test and why I liked a certain lens. And then he would explain why he did. And it was just this really beautiful, fluid conversation that was totally innocent on his part. And it was really, really lovely. So, you know, you're, you're just finishing In the Heights and you get approached with this script. I mean, does Lynn just immediately offer you the job right on the spot and say, it's yours if you want it? Or do you have to do a test? Like, what's the process? So I had this great meeting with him and, you know, I didn't actually know. I mean, we talked as if I had the job, but there's lots of other parts to getting the job. It's not, especially when it's a first time director, it's usually not like, okay, you've got the job. So a couple of weeks went by and I didn't hear anything. And then I ended up, the producers wanted to meet me. And so I ended up in a producer meeting. And so that progressed things. And then they wanted to look at my lookbook. I shared it with them. And then I think I ended up sending it to them. And, you know, to the powers that be, it went down the chain and I ended up with the job. But it was probably a six-week process. It was not quick at all. I know we could go down this path, but I'm taking it down a different path. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, my mind is blown. That's yeah. all. It's like, I've, I watched In the Heights. And it's like, after that film, it's like, you can't just get the job. Like, what yeah. the heck's going on here? Well, I want to ask about In the Heights because I wanted to ask about this sequence when Myron was here and we didn't have time. Forgive me for not knowing the name of the song. And I've, I've listened. Anyway. Yeah. But the usage. Okay. So when you, you rotate the camera upside down and they're on the building and they're, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't even know if you're rotating, but they're dancing on the when building. The sun goes down. Yes. It's, it's, it's amazing. And I wanted to know how Myron was working on it. And I want to know how you did it. And also just the general use of CG in that film. I'd be curious about how you prepare for shooting those kind of sequences. So when the sun goes down and in the heights, it comes at sort of the end of the movie. And 
the way we approached it was on day one of prep, we all started figuring this out. Like John Chris Scott and I, John Chu Chris Scott and I had always had this dream about doing a dance on the side of a building because we've worked together for 20 years and we did this series called the Legion of Extraordinary Dancers and had always wanted to do something on the side of a building, but that didn't have the budget to do it. So now John comes to us, he's like, I've got it. I've got the number where we do defy gravity this way and in this really poetic way that that sort of end of a love story between Benny and Nina. And so we're all game, but then the reality is how do we make that happen? So we started talking about it on day one and it's the very last thing we shot. So five months later, and it took everyone's brain power to figure it out. And the way it works is we had a wall with a fire escape that's vertical. And then we have a dance floor made out of brick that's horizontal. And so when the number starts, you've got Benny and Nina on the fire escape. And then at some point she goes and she sits back and sits against the window. And Benny sort of puts his hand leaning out, looking over the city. And this wall is actually hydraulic and it starts to tilt backwards. And our camera then has to move and rotate with it. So you don't see that we're tipping it because we're in this green screen environment. And we shot the plate, the background for the green screen. We found the building sometime during prep that we would be the building Nina would have lived in with the George Washington Bridge behind her. And so we shot our visual effects plate of the sun setting. So we knew what our background was. And I asked visual effects to go shoot that plate on what's called Manhattan Henge, which it's the, there's two days a year when the sun sets north of the George Washington Bridge. And I wanted the sun to set north of the George Washington Bridge for the angle of the sun on the building. And so now we've got, we know what our background is, where the sun is exactly in the sky. So I take a huge tungsten light, we put it on a crane with an operator in the crane and four people pushing a dolly. Because the thing is, because the world rotates, then shadows start to move. So the shadow needed to stay exactly the same. And it's called when the sun goes down. So we need a hard source. And we know it was a sunny day when we shot our plates. And so the sun needs to track exactly as the wall moves. And then at the same time, our sky source has to change. So I've got three huge boxes of light above us. That was easier because that was all into the dimmer board because they were all LEDs and we were able to attach it to the music track. So they just rotated with the music track. So our sky was here and then it rotated our sky was on top above us and then it rotated all the way to behind. You the programmed the dimmer board like to the music. I didn't even know. That's really cool. Yeah. I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> so anyway, that's the lighting part of it. And then the camera part was we went into this motion capture world, visual VR world to do tests. It was Chris, me, the visual effects supervisor, John Chu and two dancers. And we started to work out the moves. And at first we thought, oh, We'll just attach the camera to the wall and boom, it'll come down and then we'll cut. And we realized during that test that it wasn't magical at all. Like it was clearly what you could see what happened and that the opening and closing shot actually needed to be as long as possible. So we made that opening shot really long and the end shot is long. And then in between, we, there's more editing. But those two shots, we have no way to get in and out of them. They are, they are what they are. It's really impressive. What was the situation with the actors on set, like, you know, on this wall that's moving? Like, did they have to have be like, 
strapped in? Like, how many times did you rehearse it before you got it right? Like, that must have been pretty insane to, to do. Yeah. So the AD was wonderful. He worked with us so that it was scheduled for two days, but he gave us four half days. So four mornings, we'd start on our wall. And then in afternoons, we move into the bodega so that each day we'd learn something and then had time to like work things out. And Chris had time to work with the actors and work out any kinks we had. So it gave us some reaction time, I guess I could say. But they're not trained dancers. And it was hard. It is tricky. It's the end of the scene. The wall actually never goes fully vertical again. So we end in this slope, a bit of a slope. It just never went fully vertical. And so it's tricky for them. Um, But the platform was built at a low height so that there was no issue with having to have guardrails or harnesses or anything in terms of their safety. So it was a lot of work for everybody. When we talked to Myron, we talked a little bit about the pandemic and how that impacted the post schedule. And if I recollect this properly, it's like, I mean, there was a reopening of the cut. I'll just go there. There was a reopening mm-hmm. of the cut to a degree at some point during the pandemic and the film changed a little bit. I'm just curious how your process was impacted by the pandemic and how you, I don't know, how you looked at the additional photography after going through something like that. So the pandemic actually gave us a great deal of breathing room instead of like push, push, push to the end finish line. So I started the DI, the digital intermediate, where I go in and I color the movie in February 2020. And I was prepping tick, tick, boom. And so I go in at night, like at five in the evening and then on weekends to work on the color with the colorist. And then I started production and we weren't done. And so the colorist went back to LA and I was still in New York and we were going to, we were going to all get back together and finish coloring a movie in a couple of weeks when all the visual effects came in. And of course that never happened because the pandemic hit. So that was March, 2020. And I went back to New York in August, 2020 to finish coloring the movie. And it was interesting because while we were coloring the movie, I just felt like we kept referencing our dailies, but it felt like there was a moment where the colorist didn't quite understand the color. He's not from New York. He didn't quite understand the color I wanted for New York. And I was trying to figure out how to explain it to him. And he's like the most brilliant colorist. I love him. He's very, very intuitive, but it was subtly too warm. And when he heard summer and a hot summer, that was where he went with it. But Summer in New York, and specifically summer in Washington Heights, is the light there is unlike anywhere I've ever been in the world. And I called it urban summer for a long time, but it was more than urban summer. It's very specifically Washington Heights summer. And in Washington Heights, it's a very narrow tip of Manhattan where you've got the East River and the Hudson River on either side, very close together. So you have these two beautiful reflecting pools. And then you also have the sun in and that's those summer months lines up perfectly with the avenues. And the buildings in that part of New York are lower than the rest of Manhattan. And the color of the brick is different. It's not the red brick that you find in the rest of New York. It's like this silvery, gray, yellowy, patinaed brick. And it just creates this amazing light bouncing everywhere. And the color is just different. And so when we went back in August, when things started to open up during the pandemic, the colorist was, we weren't even in the same city. He was in Los Angeles and we were doing remote sessions 
which I can could actually everything's lined up. I can see him changing things as I talk to him. It's pretty amazing. You have to like calibrate your monitors so they look at the same thing. Well, we're, they send we're, it's at, it, we, I was in New York in, in the theater there in, in oh, New York. Okay. Like we're projecting, we're projecting a huge image coloring. So it's still we're both looking at projected images. It's just he wasn't lived in LA and they weren't traveling him because of COVID. And so I said to Stefan, I said, can we actually start? with Carnival de Barrio, the Carnival, the number in the middle of this sort of back of this courtyard between buildings. And I felt that that really was the energy of the whole movie. And if we could find the color, if the color was perfected in those scenes, in that scene, then the rest of the color would fall into place. And that's what happened. We colored Carnival and then we went back to the beginning of the movie. And anytime things felt a little off. We just kept referencing Carnival and everything. I mean, it's exactly the exact color I wanted everything. And it's, I mean, it's very subtle, but, but I feel it. So I want to jump back to early in your career, because I was looking at your IMDb and according to that, you did 14 short films before you did your first feature. And then your first, you had three features come out all in the same year. So I'm just curious, like, you know, like imagining speaking to like a young cinematographer who's trying to accelerate the career and get out of shorts into features like how did that come together for you like how did you manage to go from those shorts to doing three features kind of all back to back so i've had a long journey i knew i wanted to be a cinematographer when i was 15 years old i was a child actor and i auditioned seven times for the same role in a movie called while you are sleeping with sandra bullock and we lived in la and after my last audition we lived in the Valley and the audition was in Santa Monica and my mom and I went for a walk on the beach and I said, mom, I don't want to be an actress. That's your dream. I want to be a cinematographer. And I looked down and there was this little gray and white feather that I still have. And I picked it up and it's just this reminder of my dream and how long it's been. And in, in the Heights, Usnavi says a dream isn't some sparkly diamond. Sometimes it's rough and it has not been easy for me. It has been a constant push, but there's nothing in my life that I've wanted to do other than be a cinematographer. And I luckily surrounded myself with really amazing people who, when I am down, like Jonathan Larson in Tick, Tick, Boom, he had Michael to lift him up. And I worked really hard in high school. I went to USC. I met John Chu there where I shot his short film when the kids are away. And we bonded over a lot of musicals. And a few years later, I was at Obama's inauguration in 2009. And I, right after Obama was inaugurated, I get a call from John. And he says, I've got this little teeny project. It's called the LXD. It's a web series. And no one had heard of web series at this point. And Hulu was going to run it and Paramount was going to produce it. But we, it was very, very small. And he's like, it's really just like an experiment. Do you want to come do it? And I said, yes. And it was about superheroes who their superpowers are their dance moves. And each episode is a different genre. And we did three seasons, 30 episodes. And that's where we started working with Chris Scott as the choreographer. And we all learned so much on that project. But again, like I'm a woman working in this industry, in the industry where I don't look like a typical cinematographer, you know, throughout history. And slowly, you know, women over the last... So that was 2009. Slowly women have been, you know, making headway in cinematography. I mean, there's always been female cinematographers, but, but then John got this movie. He always would try to get me on projects with him, but it just wasn't in the cards for me. And then 
We did a little movie called Gem and the Holograms together. <laughs> and then about six months before he asked me to shoot in the Heights, I said to my husband, I'm like, I'm done. I'm like, I, this career path is just too hard. And I said, I'm ready to move on. And he said, he said, that was totally fine. Just wait six months. And six months to the day, John asked me to do In the Heights. And it came off of crazy. He had just, Crazy Rich Asians had just come out, huge success. And that's the only movie I'd never interviewed for. So he finally had a chance to just say, I'm, this is it. I want Alice. Alice is the person who shoot this movie. And we did. And in that six months, we also, I did. Queen Bees, which came out this summer, which I worked with an amazing director as well. And we had our just complete kindred spirits, Michael Lumbeck. And I did Home Before Dark, which was John's pilot for Apple TV Plus. And actually one of the, the showrunner on that, one of the showrunners, Dara Resnick, I shot her short film at USC also. And so that, that made that job easier to get because I, it wasn't just John on my side. It was also Dara. And so, it, but it, it has been... So, you know, I mean, it has been a long, long, long journey, and I am every day very grateful. Ulrich and I are both filmmakers, writer, director, producers. And I, as someone who originates my own projects, I never have any pushback on who I want to work with because it's like <laughs> everyone's working for nothing <laughs> and I control the money. Like there's no politics, right? Right. So am I just filling in the gaps of your answer? And I, I would love to hear more color, of course. But are you suggesting or implying that you worked in shorts because the, the people who brought you on had more creative control? Or are you saying the opportunities that you possibly didn't get in the studio world were due to some bias? Like, I'm just trying to figure mm -hmm. out. Well, I also shot, I shot a ton of shorts. And actually, most of those shorts I shot the year after I graduated from USC. I was an undergrad. And I got out of school and realized I needed more on my reel. And so I ended up shooting. I, I stuck around USC and I offered all the grad students. I'm like, can I shoot your short? And I mean, that was the year I actually met John because did John short too, because we were, I was a semester behind him at school. So I met all these wonderful people. And then I lived in the indie world for years and years and years. So it really was, it was like indie, small, small movies, half million dollar movies, and it was things like the LXD, which, which, and, and stuff on the web that sort of took over for about a decade. Well, what I, what I guess I'm trying to ask, but I'm doing really poorly at it, is, but the, one of the cinematographers I usually work with is Julia Swain and, and I adore oh, yeah. her. And maybe I shouldn't say this on our podcast, but she has expressed to me feeling like things are very difficult for her in terms of, she gets a lot of great jobs. This is not her, yeah. she's a success. But certain times she feels like she, when she gets a no, she doesn't really know why. And, and, and I'm curious when you talk about hardships, if you can at least hypothesize why these jobs didn't come your way earlier. I mean, I don't know. I, I'll never know, right? I'll never know if I wasn't hired because of my gender or not, or if I didn't have enough credits or what it was. But I think, I mean, I think this business is hard no matter, no matter what your background is. It's brutal no matter what, but I think it's especially brutal for any person of any diversity and that's changing and it actually feels like it's changing much quick, more quickly now. And I'm encouraged on, I used to be the only woman in a scout fan whenever I'd go location scouting and on Tick, Tick, Boom, it was often Lynn was the only guy. I mean, it, that was very encouraging. And I've, I mean, I've also been in New York, which feels much more diverse to begin with. and then. You've also got, I'm working with two amazing directors who 
diversities in their DNA and hiring people from all places, corners of the world, all different backgrounds and genders. And I feel really lucky to be working with people like them. So was it a hard jump to go from like your short films to getting your first feature? Or was that kind of like a natural step to get into the the indie world as a feature cinematographer? You know, I just start, I don't even remember. I mean, it, it, you know, I was doing like first hundred thousand dollar features, which felt smaller than the than the shorts I was working on at USC, which probably had a hundred thousand dollars to make them. And then I was doing, you know, two hundred and fifty thousand dollar movies and then $500,000 movies. And then I sort of was in the like two to $5 million range for quite a long time. And that felt great. You know, I was working with wonderful people and telling stories. And, but sometimes those movies never see the light of day is the problem. And so that's hard too. Was part of the reason why you were, you were contemplating quitting because doing those two to $5 million movies were so, were so challenging and it wasn't really, you didn't see like the upward trajectory in your career after doing it for so long or like what was like some of the, the hardships or struggles specifically were you facing, you know, when you're working at that budget range? Yeah. I mean, it really was like working. I had a little girl and she's six now. And suddenly it was like, I was doing these movies and then no one would ever see them. And so what was the point of making movies that no one saw? And then that taking away from my family and also just like what the kinds of projects that were being sent to me that I wouldn't take because they were no longer stories that I wanted to be part of telling because I suddenly had this sense of responsibility to future generations because now I'm a mother of those future generations. And I didn't have that weight on me when I was younger and working. It was just all about, oh, just take whatever is available. But that, that no longer was the case for me. And I could not see a path where I was going to get to a different level. At any, I just didn't see it. It did not feel like there was a way forward. And, and I didn't want to continue my career doing what I was doing. That is just so interesting to hear. We Ulrich just had a baby. I have a, I have a almost three year old, so we often talk about parenthood. Well, I have one last question. I'm sure Ulrich has one or two, and I'll just jump in with this. In terms of working with a director, you know, we've heard different stories of cinematographers who like to do the shot list, like to storyboard, like to kind of control everything visual in the best way, of course, and then those who relinquish that control over to the director and kind of expect the director to do that. How do you work or how do, what kind of prep work do you expect from your directors? So on Tick, Tick, Boom, it was this amazing collaborative process where Lynn brought this sort of workshop mentality that is something very specific to theater to prep, where you gather a group of people and you sort of try things on and see what works and everyone's ideas are listened to. And the, our storyboard sessions were me, Lynn, and the storyboard artists. And that's usually the way it is. But then this grew to the writer was with us, Stephen Levinson, and the AD, Mariala Comentini, and the production designer, Alex Orlando. And it was this amazing, amazing collaborative space that we would talk about the scene, then we would draw the scene, and then the next day we'd come back and look at it, and was it working or not? And then and it would evolve, and it was this real process of discovery. And then I would take the scenes and cut them into animatics with the pre-recorded music. And so we had this really nice foundation for the movie before we ever started. 
And then on in the Heights, it was similar, except it was just it wasn't everyone. It wasn't all those people doing the storyboards. It was me and John and then Chris Scott. John and I would also film dance rehearsal on our iPhones. And then John would cut the animatics together to the pre-records. And the three of us would meet at his apartment on a Sunday after every Sunday afternoon. And we'd airdrop the files to each other. And then John would cut together things. And then we'd discuss, okay, well, this is nice, but we really need a crane shot here or a lower angle here. And that's how our storyboard process worked on In the Heights. So they were different, but both incredibly collaborative. And that's what interests me. I like from a director, because I grew up as a child actor, I like some sort of intention. I like everything to be very specific and have an intention for each scene. And and in those storyboard sessions, we figured those intentions out. Do you always do storyboards or is that something that like kind of came with the higher budget projects that you've been working on more recently? No, I, do, I mean, it definitely came with the higher budget projects. On Queen Bees, we miraculously ended up with two extra weeks of prep because of one of the actor's schedules. But we had all our locations. So the director and I went and I shot digital storyboards for the whole thing. And we didn't draw anything. I just would walk around and we had two people or a couple of people to like stand in the frame for me and we'd figure out exact sizing and everything. And so when we got to shooting, it was, it was really easy. That nice. sounds so nice just to be in the location two weeks before a shoot. I know. Oh it was so nice. It was such a luxury. And, and we're like, well, what do we do with our time? Because we had shot listed a whole movie. He, he comes from TV and comedy, like he did the Santa Claus movies and he directed Friends for years and Mad About You. So he's very, he created the whole shot list and then we talked through everything together and then we did this storyboard, digital storyboards together and it was just amazing. Arik, do you want to? Yes, I do. Of course. (laughs) I I have two, but I'm going to pick one. So now that you've, you know, you've done In the Heights, you've done Tick, Tick, Boom. Like, do you now notice like a complete shift? I mean, you ha- you're attached to a lot of projects. You're in pre- pre-production Wicked. on some. <laughs> Wicked. <laughs> like, is it now a whole new world for you? Or do you feel like you're still like having to, to, to work hard and, and push to get these opportunities that are coming your way? It's both, right? Like, I'm definitely in a whole new world. And like I said earlier, I am completely grateful and humbled by this experience every day. But it's also, I know, like... I know how hard I've already worked and I'm not going to let up at all. I mean, it is consistently hard work and I'm up for, I'm up for that challenge. And last thing. So speaking to the, to the cinematographer who is maybe thinking about quitting up and, and specifically like the female DP who's like really having a hard time. Like, what would you say to that person who's like really trying to figure it out and like struggling? So John Chu took a video of me when we were doing when the kids are away 20 years ago. And he just he just moved and he just digitized everything and he found it. And he's like, you'll never believe what I found. So a month before In the Heights came out, he's showing me these videos and he went around and the night before we started filming at our production meeting and interviewed all all the crew members. And the question he asked me is, What Alice, what would you say to your future self? And I said, enjoy this moment. And I think it's basically the same message I would give to a young cinematographer who wants to give up, which is go with the ride, enjoy it. It's going to be hard, but just just try to enjoy the ride because it is a wave. If you can learn to enjoy the wave, that is part of making movies. 
That's a great segue to our, our final five questions. What's the first film you ever shot? How do you feel about it now? Like full-length movie? It could be a short. It could be a feature, whatever you, however you interpret it. It could be the web series, whatever. Okay. I did this short in college called Meta, and it was my thesis film at USC, and I shot it, and I like have this idol, idealized memory of how amazing it is, and then I go back and look at it, and I'm like, oh, wow, okay. <laughs> but... But I still, I mean, I love, I love I, every, when I think about the movie and just like inspired that we did such an amazing job on this little teeny short. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Hollywood is like a brick wall. The goal is to get to the other side. And so you can spend years or months or decades taking rocks and throwing them against this brick wall. And one day you'll see this teeny tiny hole to the other side. And that's the moment you're going to want to give up. And that's the moment you must not give up. You must work harder and throw more and more rocks at the wall because you're closer than you think. I like that. Do you have a goal for your career that you want to hit some sort of goalpost? I just now want to make movies that inspire my child, whether it's right now or in 20 years. I, I want her to be proud of me and to feel that she's part of the work I'm doing. That's beautiful. If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? Sort of the same thing. Be in the moment. Enjoy the moment. Stop fretting so much. Final question. Is making movies hard? Yeah, they're totally hard, but that's what we do. We're, as storytellers, we rise to the challenge. And that's part of what I love about making movies is like, you have this, these huge dreams, these huge ideas, this huge vision. And then the goal is to like make a great movie, make it impactful. And then you start COVID into it and you have to start all over again and figure out how to deal with that challenge on top of, on top of everything else. All right. Did, we have three minutes. Is there a question you wanted to ask that you didn't get to? Well, yeah, I, I guess the question that's on my mind as I think about my, my future career is like how to manage being a parent and doing like the most amazing job I could ever imagine in my life. And so you're there now, like you're doing these amazing, amazing films. Like, how do you manage that? I would love to know. I, I mean, every day it's figuring it out, right? Because you've got this growing human being that each day needs something different than they needed the day before. And so I, it's just, I guess it's just being really adaptable and, and being able to pivot quickly and, and not be so rigid. So because it, it is, it's every day and just like trying to figure out how to get groceries and, and dinner on the table when you work 16 hours a day. So it is a constant challenge. And I, if someone knew the answer, I think we'd all, everyone would make movies. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for being on the show. Do you, um, how, do, how can people support you? Do you want to shout out your social profiles? Do you want to? Oh, sure. Follow me on Instagram if you want. It's <laughs> underscore Alice Brooks underscore. Nice. Amazing. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. This was so amazing. I love all your questions. So Liz, what did you remember from our conversation with Alice? I was thinking about this. I really like talking to her. I think of this conversation like very fondly, think back on it very fondly. The main takeaway for me is just an admiration for the clarity of what her goals were. Like she just knew exactly what she wanted to be when she was young. And then she just went after it. And I, I love that. I love like, because, you know, like I do some mentorship and I do some supportive projects and it's really, really hard to help someone they, when they can't tell you exactly what they need. 
But the fact that she knew exactly what she wanted to do and just went after it. And yes, she had some pitfalls, but eventually everything culminated and she's on her way now was incredibly beneficial to her and her trajectory. What do you you remember? I just remember how interesting it was that she had this like long career of DPing indie features and that it was like, you know, not really fulfilling anymore. You know, like it, it turned into this thing where it was just a job and it was a slog to be away from her family. And like, you know, she just wasn't being lit up by it anymore. And she was ready to to figure out what else to do with her life. And then all of a sudden, like when she's just about to quit completely, this huge door opens, this humongous opportunity that is like something that has she laid the seeds for, like in the very beginning of her career, basically. And it's like, boom. And then everything changes. And then she's completely reignited again. She's like working on the highest, like pretty much the highest level that you can be, you know, in filmmaking. I mean, you know, it's not like $250 million budgets, but I mean, it's pretty much studio feature, musical, you know, famous director, famous, you know, actors. You're there, you know? So I just thought it was really interesting how like, you know, she grinded it out for years and she made the leap, but it also just showed like how hard it is to get out of that zone once you're in it. Like when you're in the, you know, certain budget range of features, it's like, it's really hard to escape it, you know? Which is so funny because the movies that she may have felt trapped in were still pretty inspiring level of budgets and impact, you know? But she had her sights on, you know, she was ambitious. She's ambitious. I also love how you mentioned, you know, how she planted the seeds early on with John Chu, their friendship in film school, and how like that culminated when John Chu's career took off too. And they came back together in a partnership. And it just reminds me of like, so very often as filmmakers, we have so many connections that we just like forget about. Like I remember my friend, I reached out to my friend Brad in the other day, and he directed this film called What Lies Below. And he's so well connected. And he's so amazing. I'm saying like, I forgot about Braddon. I forgot (laughs) forgot that he existed. (laughs) But he was someone from film school that I thought was so lovely and so friendly and that we have these cheerleaders who want to collaborate with us who could benefit from our contributions that sometimes we forget about because we're stuck in this like ladder where we're just trying to climb the ladder and forgot about the context of the greater picture. Yeah. But let's move on to news. And this week, we have an article from No Film School about the Austin Film Festival screenplay competition. The article is called Some AFF28 Screenplay Feedback Goes Viral for Its Poor Quality. It's written by Jason Hellerman. And Alric, what were your immediate thoughts from this article? Well, I was very surprised that Austin Film Festival would have such terrible script coverage as associated with them because, you know, you always think of them as some of the highest film festival that you want to get into and like you know they they're really known for their their screenwriting competition and for their you know their panels and their events and like everything about what they do with the screenwriting it just seems like very focused and very professional and very like at a high level so to hear that this <laughs> this feedback is like worse than what I would get from people who aren't even in the industry <laughs> it's like oh wow this is terrible and for it to be like you know to have some racist things in there too it's just like what in the world? Like, who is vetting these people? You know, like, how are they deciding who they will let read these and who they won't, you know? Well, and I, they, they excerpt some feedback, right? Which was, you know, not great. But it did remind me, this whole article reminded me of how much, so much of society at large, and of course, the entertainment industry 
is built off of emotional gut reactions and not data-driven thorough valuations of things. So while I am very happy to blame poorly vetted coverage readers who are just bad at imparting feedback, I also would say that there's a reason why they didn't like that script. You know, maybe they couldn't Mm. qualify it properly. But ultimately, you're entering into a competition where you're asking for subjective points of view on a subjective piece of art. And it's never going to turn out in a really thorough way, especially if you're not really paying the coverage writers really well or supporting them and to get the job done in a thorough fashion. Even how we put our show together, right? It's like we read emails from people and we think to ourselves, what's our gut instinct? Do we want to talk to that person on the show? It's not based off of data and it's not based off of thorough vetting. It's just like, oh, that sounds good. Let's do that one. So I just think a lot of the world moves because of emotional decisions and not true data. And this feels like a reflection of that. Yeah, but we read the emails, you know, <laughs> like we don't just not read what is sent and then judge it based off of one sentence, which I think Ooh. is part of what some, some of this is saying. Is they, they just skim the work and then actually, you know, well, read it. Yeah, but a lot of distributors skim films and don't watch them. A lot of agents and made it, you know, it's like, Everyone skims everything. That's not the society we should live in. We should hold people to a certain standard. But it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me that people got bad feedback from a screen right. competition. I guess the difference is, right, if you're, if you're paying for it, it's one thing. But like if, if I send right. my you know, work to an agent or a manager or even like somebody who wants to read it or asked to read it, if they skim it, that's on them if they want to do it that way, whatever. But like, it's not like I'm paying them for the service. Yeah. Like. They're paying for this service and then people aren't reading them. It's like, that seems, you know, like very false, you know? Yeah. But I do, I do agree to some extent that like, yeah, like feedback is hard. And if you've written a script that isn't very strong or has lots of issues, people are not very friendly in their feedback. Sometimes they're very coarse and they're very clear about what isn't working. And I think like I read, I read some of the expert excerpts and some of them just seemed, you know, very harsh, you know, in, in a lot of ways. But it's hard to know if it's deserving of that, you know, if you haven't read the script or not, I guess. I don't know. But I mean, but I guess the question is like, is that okay no matter what? Like, should they even be allowed to be that, you know, frank in their feedback or do they need to have some sort of, I don't know, filter so they're not coming off a certain way? I don't know. That's interesting. I was, I always bring things back into the personal. I was thinking back on high school drama because I did that acting class and I went through a lot of weird stuff last week. And I was thinking about how I would audition for shows and I'd go to my acting teacher and I'd say, I'd love some feedback on the audition. Can you tell me? And she never gave me what I think would have been really helpful in that moment, which was an honest reflection of whether, like what went wrong. She was like, oh, mm. I wrote you down front row chorus. You did great. And it's like, well, why, why am I in the chorus, Mistro? Like, tell me what's going on. And I'm just saying like... <laughs> There's a lot of fallout for being frank in these screenplay evaluations, but I'd rather have someone explicitly tell me what they thought was wrong than talking around it or talking over it and giving me something that won't give me any clarity to why it was rejected. So at least I could read this now and be like, oh, well, they're racist. That's why they don't like my script. Okay, well, that's cool. Now I know that they're racist, you know, on to the Mm. next. But this the vague like fear of like triggering people and upsetting them 
is boring and I'd rather us just give genuine feedback back to the artists who deserve it. Right. I remember years ago, I did this thing where you, like you pay like $25, $30 and then you can get like an eight minute pitch with like an executive. Oh. Stage 32 does these and there was a writer's roadmap or roadmap writers or something like they used to do these things. I think they still do. So I did that and I, I got like, I did 25 of them or something. And then I got like, I think eight like asks or eight re- script requests or something out of it, you know? And then out of that request, like you're supposed to get feedback when they request it, you know, that's part of the, the deal. And I remember most of them were pretty good and detailed and like some, some people really hated it and they told me why and it was very clear. But I remember there's a couple that were very like, like, did you even read this? Or like, oh, you give one sentence feedback and then you just like fill out the rating card or whatever. And I remember thinking, feeling a little let down by it, but also just feeling like, you know, to some extent, like, I don't know. It's like they must not have connected to it and they must not have liked it that much. And they obviously didn't want to move forward with me in any way. Cause the hope is that like they'll rate it high and then they'll want to like make it with you or work with you on it, you know? And that is scenario, I don't think I was that annoyed because what I paid for was the pitching and that that went well, you know, and that was good practice. And then like, what happens after there? Who knows, you know? But like, I guess, yeah, for that, it was like, oh, is it even worth it to do it? And I I guess I answered like, probably not. Like, it's probably more worth it to find people who are connected to you personally that you can pitch to who will actually like, you know, have more like interest in you as a filmmaker than just like somebody you're paying who's doing it for a job and then like like are they really gonna like want to make your like they're gonna have to love it more than anything they've ever heard ever especially if like their job is to listen to pitches and listen to scripts it's like why would they go with this person that like they have no it's just a money situation versus somebody that like their boss like you know got the meeting and set them up and it's like oh well you know this will this is somebody that actually matters where the paid people are just like randos, you know. It lowers your brand, right? It lowers your brand. Absolutely. I think there's something interesting about that. The idea of like, are you paying for coverage? Are you paying to be a part of a competition? And yes, the feedback that these people are getting reflects the fact that they aren't getting a fair shake at this competition, which is really Mm. like, I, I should have acknowledged at the beginning, that's really the travesty here. But how helpful are these competitions to getting projects off the ground? And I think right. writers specifically, more so than even directors and producers, are really powerless in this industry. So when they think that the pathway to getting their film greenlit is the Austin Film Festival screenplay competition, which it is not, by the way, it is very <laughs> much not, right. they feel like they've been taken advantage of. But what we all need is a reality check that these competitions are bullshit anyway. And that we shouldn't rely on them to assess our value as creators and take what, take what you can from the feedback and help your script to make the best script possible. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like everybody wants like some answer to like, how, how do you make it? Oh, win this competition. Like get this rating on the blacklist. Like do this, do that. And then, oh, you'll, you'll have the success you want. But it's not that easy. I don't think like winning any competition or getting any kind of rating or anything is going to ever like, blow the doors open for you. It's really like, you know, meeting the right person, having the right connections, writing the script that really resonates with somebody. I think like art resonating with somebody who has either is a decision maker or has a connection to a decision maker. I think that is probably the way things happen more than anything. You know, it's like people reacting to something, either the, the filmmaker or the work or both, you know. 
And, you know, you ha- may get a little bit of a flashlight shining on your script because you win a script competition or you play semifinals. And it's something to brag about. It's something to talk about to remind people that you exist and are out there creating art. But in my experience, you know, the really unique projects are not accepted by the status quo and are not right. winning like most common denominator competitions. And they are pushed forward due to one individual believing it more than anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this rolls perfectly into the thing I wanted to talk about, which is pitching. As I mentioned earlier, I did all these pitches last week, which was really, really great. Part of the process was to make a pitch video and a pitch deck that the people who you know, were participating could review beforehand. I would tell you, like, I think one person I pitched to had watched my video or maybe two out of all 40 or whatever. So I feel like, yeah, either that wasn't a very like, it wasn't given to them properly or it just wasn't something like, I, they probably were like, oh, like, why do I need to watch the pitch video if I'm going to get the pitch on the day, you know? So I think most people didn't feel the need to, to double dip with the prep. But anyways, it was really great for me because I got to, you know, build my deck out finally, hone my pitch, like figure out how I want to communicate this movie to people in general. You know, so like doing the pitch video was actually great because like I just did it over and over again and memorized part of it to camera. And I kind of got like in the zone, the energy and the feeling of the movie. And then when I did my pitches to all the people live or through Zoom, I just freeformed and just talked about it. And I basically in doing that, like I figured out my like elevator pitch or my off the cuff pitch for the movie, which I had for the alternate for years. But now I have one for brother and it's great. It's like really great that I could just launch into how I'm going to describe this movie to a person and like know that it'll most likely get a positive reaction based off of all the positive reactions I got pitching it during this, these events. But I wanted to hear from you, Liz, like how do you practice pitching? Like how do you approach pitching? Do you have a process? Like how do you go about the whole thing? Well, I've never done one of these pitch events. I've never... It's funny. I was thinking about how I talk about how I'm like never chosen by the system, but I really never apply to anything that the system offers. So <laughs> I've been on the other side. When I worked at Sundance, I went to IFP and I sat as the arbiter in the arbiter role and the, you know, in the gatekeeper role. And I listened to pitches. And then the only pitches I've really done are, you know, I've gone through a deck with a potential investor and I got them on board. And then when I pitch, my, my mentor, Tom, brings me onto projects and I usually pitch with him on the call, but me as a solo director pitching to the partner he needs to convince to let me be a part of the project. So mm. when I do that, I put together a keynote presentation with pictures. And it's that whole thing that we always talk about where it's like, you know, what's my take on the film? What are the comps? What are the tonal comps? What are the other films that this is totally similar to? What are the mm. actors I would go for? And I sit there and I go through the deck and I have notes on the side of the computer and I read through those notes and I stare at the lens and I turn it into a presentation as if I'm a business person in a conference room. Hmm. We're trying to do something different with this film Hold Me Now that I'm attached to where we're trying to do a much more interactive pitch. Mm. But that's because that's like a studio project that we think has mm. legs. But so why, that, why, yeah. why, do you, why do you want the studio one to be more interactive and not like the other style? Because we, we're seeing this as like an opportunity to be audacious. We want it to be like, first of all, this movie, Hold Me Now, written by Natalie Higdon. It's such a great script. It's so fun. It's an 80s rom-com. 
And everyone that we've gone to so far has been like 80s, music licensing, production design. Oh, no. And so we want to be like, we're going to use those same assets that intimidate you and freak you out with regard to the commitment. And we're going to bring you into our world and remind you that like it's worth the investment. So we've developed a playlist. You know, we're going to bring merch into the room, so to speak. We're pulling the project outside of the deck and Mm. making it interactive. But everything else, I think, is a little it's a little presumptuous for me to be doing that on like a standard director's pitch, I think. Whereas Mm. this bigger project is like at least a two million dollar minimum project to pitch out. And then who are you pitching that one to? It's a studio or a bunch of studios or what's the plan? The plan is we're starting in the new year, but the plan is actually to approach production companies that are led by actresses. They're actress-run production companies. Oh, cool. Because it's a female-forward project. And like my inspiration are like the 80s movies directed by women that I love. Like My number one Mm. inspiration for this film is Valley Girl. Mm. So the idea is to approach it from like a female-centric power position. Nice. And it's a great female lead, too. So you didn't go after Margot Robbie's production company for this? That's actually not the plan. <laughs> We're actually looking at like <laughs> Zoe Lister-Jones as like our oh, person okay, that nice. we want to go. Yeah, we yeah, want yeah, like yeah, the yeah, indie-friendly yeah. people who actually still right. are making strides in the studio world. Right, right, yeah. That that's a way better. <laughs> like more <laughs> reasonable. To Margo, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's so funny. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So I guess the question is: so do you ever step away from the deck and just pitch without it, and then like leave the deck later, or do you like pitching with the deck? Does it feel like that's like a good way to like kind of convey the story for you? I've never done it without the deck, but again, I don't, I don't do a lot of pitching because I haven't really had to do it. I just get on a phone call, right? Or I met someone in person. So how is that? So yeah, how, how do you get the, the, you know, financiers for your films then? Is it like, do you do like, is it just like lunches and you sit down and you kind of explain the movie to them? It's more of a conversation or like, how have you like secured your previous, you know, investments? I mean, I can take us through it, though I think it might bore everyone to tears. But like, you know, I did a Kickstarter campaign for my first feature. And through that Kickstarter campaign, someone that I produced a short with decided she wanted to invest in films. Mm, So mm. she was just following along on my email list and Uh, then was like, I want to talk to you. And then she brought in to someone, brought in someone who wanted to support female filmmakers. So it's like Mm. there's always an angle. But but I guess well, the question is for those pitches, it's just, is it pitches or is it, is it more just conversations where you're just like, you don't like actually do like a song and dance where it's more like you just tell them about the movie and then I did a song and dance for the second person, for the latter, for the one who wanted okay. to invest in female businesses and female entrepreneurs. And it mm-hmm. was a deck and I walked it through, but I don't even think I needed to do that because ultimately I had right. been vetted by our mutual friends. The film was about to go. The timing was right. They read the script and they were looking for, I think they were looking for a loss, to be honest. I think they were Mm. looking for a loss for a good cause. And I think I presented myself at the right time. I don't know how helpful that is for other people to hear, but I think you need to be ready with the assets that you're talking about. You need to be ready with a deck. You, I have a deck for every single project that I'm actively out in right with right now. Nice. And then... If you have a video too, I mean, that's amazing. And then if you have a budget, you know, that's what they're going to ask for eventually. And then it's 
what attachments do you have? Do you have cast? Mm-hmm. Like it's right. every single question is like, what do you have? What do you have? What do you have? So if you have as many things as possible, you're more likely to be taken seriously by a company. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, when I was pitching for the alternate, like basically the way that we would do it is I was doing it with my producer. And so he would pretty much start, it was very conversational, right? Like it was very much just like, you know, asking questions and just being relaxed and like not making it feel very pitchy. And then when it was come time to talk about the movie, like he would kind of outline the business. Then I would talk story. And then generally it was like all the questions, all the conversation from there was just the business. So like I basically, most of the pitches that I did, I, I hardly talked. Like it was mainly my producer ans- answering all these like, you know, investment related questions of the people with the money, you know? Yeah. So it was really interesting doing it that way. But like, yeah, I don't know. I feel like every pitch is different and every person is different. And I think like for me, like I like to step away from like the more song and dancey type of thing and just sort of talk about the movie and like make sure you're hitting all the beats. But like, I don't even really like to use the deck while I'm pitching because I think like I just get bogged down in like words and in images, you know, whereas I can just tell the story and like communicate everything to them through talking and then leave them with the deck or send them the deck afterwards. And then they could dig in on their own and like look through it and like follow up more information. That sounds like the right way to do it. I mean, like the goal is just to communicate. I think my pitches have all been over Zoom or like in a cafe where I had to pull up my, you know, printout or a computer or take them through a presentation. But for the most part, they've been in a place where I didn't know them well enough and they needed to be taken through something that felt tangible. Yeah. Yeah. But like I've heard stories of people going in a room and pitching based off of like just a really good chemistry with the right. people they're talking to, which just seems to be what you're doing. I, I like the idea of having the, the deck on hand, you know? So it's like, if I go to a physical meeting, like having a physical copy of it with me, like in case I want to whip it out and show it to them, you know? Yeah. But like, generally, like I don't even ever bring it out, like when I was doing that or, you know, or I hand it to them at the end, but usually everybody wants it digital. So I usually never even brought it out on most of my meetings I've done. I just like, you know, ask them if I can send them the deck at the end if they want to hear more. And then they'll usually say yes. And then I send them the deck and then, you know, I usually hear nothing. But, um, you know, <laughs> like I think that that's sort of like a pretty good process. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see like out of these, all these meetings I did, like I emailed almost everybody that I pitched to, you know, between now and, and right. when they we finished. And so, and I got a couple people respond to me, a couple people who requested the script, which was really cool. Um, so they got through the deck and like wanted to read the script. Yeah, now I'm just sort of in the waiting mode, you know, and I think like I'll probably hear back from people like once this week is over and then people are into the holidays, like I'll, maybe I'll get some more responses. But yeah. I think if nothing else, if nothing happens from this whole thing, it was great to just have the practice to pitch because it just allowed me to know like, my project so much better. And then just like I'm now I'm that much, I'm 40 times I mean, not 40 times, but I'm like, whatever. Yeah, whatever times more better at pitching than I was before, you know, because I did it that many more times. I think I said this before, maybe last week, but I'm jealous. I wish I I was forced into that kind of scenario. And I'm going to have to put myself through that kind of scenario as preparation for going out with Hold Me Now. And then we're not out to any financiers for any other projects, but we're, you know, it's funny, like I'm in development with a production company on one of my features. 
And it was just like a really great, charming phone call where I didn't send oh, nice. anything in advance. So you're right. There is something to be said of just talking, just talking. A uh, hot tip for everybody. If you want to have the opportunity to do a pitch event like I'm describing, you know, send your film to the Silicon Valley Film Festival. They take mostly shorts and they take features too, but that's how it happens. So basically, if you get into the film festival, then they automatically allow you to opt in to the pitch event if you want. Yes. So I, this is my third time applying. I finally got in. And so I would recommend to everybody because like, you know, it's a small festival, but this pitch event is like a rare opportunity where you actually get to pitch to people who actually might want to invest in your project. So, you know, highly recommended. So add that to your to-do list, but also you can always send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Thanks to Alice Brooks for coming on the show. Thanks to Katie and Meredith from EB Communications for setting this up. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Vrymote, for editing and being wonderful. And of course, to our producer, Eric Toms, for being awesome. Thanks to everyone for listening and talk to all y'all next week. I'm Mark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, Babs, Fusi, Fusi, Fu.